we're talking about on the front line in a war zone. So often when I would show up to embed with the military, it was pretty clear that they would be bummed out when a woman would show up because they felt like, oh, she's not going to be able to keep up. What if we get shot at? Is she going to cry? You know, all that. So you have to really prove yourself that you can keep up and that you do have experience and that, you know, you will be able to hold your own. And essentially it comes down to that. Can you hold your own? Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Elaine. And I'm Sarah. Today we have Lindsay Adario on the show. Lindsay is an award-winning American photojournalist who contributes regularly to the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time magazine. Her coverage as an international photojournalist for several decades is extensive. She's documented both headline news and intimate stories all around the world. In Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Libya, she's given us an up-close view of war and revolution. She brought us stories of maternal mortality in Sierra Leone, sexual assault in Madagascar, rape in the DRC, heroin addiction in Afghanistan, life before and after the Taliban in Pakistan and Afghanistan. She's been on the front lines in the Iraq War and the Korangal Valley, and many, many other places. Her memoir, titled It's What I Do, recounts over 20 years of becoming one of our most renowned photojournalists. It's an intimate look at her life, and we highly recommend it. It was acquired by Warner Brothers, and Steven Spielberg is expected to direct the film. Jennifer Lawrence has been cast to portray Lindsay, and we talk about that in this episode. We also talk about courage on the front lines, the risks and trauma associated with her work, respecting cultures that aren't her own, and how she makes a living and manages her time. I interviewed Lindsay back in April 2016, and this is one of hopefully several more interviews that Sarah and I will bring you in the coming months. Okay, let's get started. The book is is called It's What I Do, and I understand, like, you feel... I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners why you do feel that this is something you're supposed to do and, and what makes... What is in your personality that makes you capable of doing what you do? I mean, I have no idea what's in my personality uh, that makes me capable of doing this work and doing it uh, and still, still, you know, being a functional human being after having been kidnapped twice and thrown out of a car on a highway in Pakistan and all this stuff. But I do think, um, and people ask me that all the time, like, why are you, you know, why are you still okay? I don't know the answer to that. I think some of it has to do with coming from like a stable family, from being very communicative, uh, from actively processing trauma, from having wonderful people in my life, um, and for doing things I know I need to do to keep myself emotionally stable, like going to the gym every day. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but to me, there must be some chemical release of endorphins or something because it does make me feel better. So I think there's that. I don't I don't think I'm any stronger or any more brave than anyone else. I just think that I believe in this work uh, wholeheartedly. I believe that it's important for people to see what's happening overseas. I believe it's important for people to have a sense of the injustices in the world. I always feel the American public needs to see pretty much everything because as uh, you know American citizens, as taxpayers who were paying for the war, uh, we need to see the repercussions of the war. We need to see uh, the the ultimate price of the war. I think it's too easy to ignore that and to just live in a bubble. And so believing in that so uh, strongly is what sort of motivates me. It's incredibly uncomfortable to be in a war zone. I mean, it's miserable. I was, last week I was in South Sudan and I was sleeping in a tent for a week and there were flies 
everywhere and we were eating you know rice and beans for every meal and and we were lucky to have food you know no electricity no it was all solar I mean you just realize the great privilege that we have uh, having been born and raised in the U.S. Could you talk about how you went from covering the big news stories, the headlines, to the more intimate, personal things, and why that choice was made? Well, I mean, it's a choice that it comes with privilege. I mean, I spent so many years working, you know, doing the grunt work, you know, doing perp walks, and, you know, doing City Hall, photographing Mayor Giuliani, protests on the street. Seven days a week, I was, you know, running around the city for the Associated Press for three years. I used to leave, like, dinners half-eaten with dates, you know. I never was around and so to be in a position in my career where I can say look this is an issue I care about I really want to get this out to the world is a massive privilege for me it's it's great to be able to spend extended periods of time with people to really get to know them to get to know their story and to not just drop in and out in two hours and then put that out there how do you choose what stories you want to work on I think there's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes I propose stories and sometimes, uh, you know, the New York Times or Time or National Geographic will come to me with a story. It has to be a story that speaks to me, something that I feel like I can actually contribute something, that I can maybe say something or reveal something that, you know, a million other photographers aren't already doing. That's why, for example, I was photographing the refugee crisis off the coast of Libya and I spent quite some time in the Mediterranean and in Sicily and documenting migrants or or refugees coming to shore in Sicily. But then the minute Lesbos became this like story where there were 45 photographers at every single landing, I said, okay, enough, I'm not going to go there because... I just didn't feel like I could contribute anything anymore. I felt like, you know, I don't... I felt almost disrespectful in, you know, these are people who are fleeing war and who are very traumatized and to sort of arrive to, you know, 25, 35 wide-angle lenses in their face. Of course, it's so important that story gets out, but I didn't feel comfortable being there. You've spent so many years building trust with subjects, but also fixers. And can you talk about how that experience and the trust building has led you to different stories over time? Yeah, I mean, I am almost completely reliant on my translators and drivers. I mean, often they come up with ideas or they, you know, we would never get access. None of us who work overseas would never get access if it weren't for them because they open doors. Uh, They are supposed to convey our personality. You know, sometimes I make jokes and my translator doesn't translate them. And and I'm like, no, 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 you have to, (laughs) you know, I'm trying to break the ice. You know, I mean, those are things that are um, important to me that, 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 people realize that there is some sort of connection Um, but our translators are incredible and so I think sometimes I do a lot of research or I hear about a story and then I'll do I'll follow up with people on the ground and try and get access and a journalist has to be knowledgeable about the place he or she works because that's our job. I mean, our job is to understand the culture and to get inside, the, you know, to understand the people we're covering. And so it was always shocking to me when I witnessed people being culturally insensitive because I feel like 
you know, when I go into Saudi Arabia, for example, I may not agree with the fact that women can't drive. I may not agree with the fact that I have to wear an abaya, which is a, you know, shoulder to floor length robe in 110 degrees and cover my hair and not let strands of, of hair show. But it's not my culture. So I do it. You know, I'm in their country. You know, I think the thing is when when someone visits another country, I think there's a certain respect involved and you have to be respectful of where you are. And I believe that firmly. The process of getting people to open up more has to do with um, with maybe um, not going in there with my cameras out. I mean, it's usually a very slow process, a process where I'm, you know, I talk to people for a long time, I have tea, I just explain where I'm coming from and I hear about their lives and then I talk about photography because a camera is a very threatening thing to a lot of people and so I think you have to be a bit savvy about when you actually introduce the camera into the conversation. And you had wrote about in your book about like how do you know what photo is worth the risk? That's something that obviously every single one of us struggles with. How do you know when a, a photo is worth the risk? I think what happens is I'll be on an assignment and uh, I get sort of gradually pulled in. So it's not like I start with the most dangerous thing. It's a, I'm working and working and then I go a little further and then I go a little further and then I end up in the middle of you know the front line. And so I think every single one of us who does this work has to make a judgment call of how far to go and how how many more pictures I need. Do I have enough photographs to illustrate the story, to convey the emotion, uh, to convey the risk and the danger? I mean, that's... Uh, uh, sometimes the image that's missing is is sort of the danger element, and so uh, it's a it's a tough calculation. I mean, every photo plays a different role in a photo story. You know, you have the one that uh, is more. Let's just take it like dissect a story. Um, I did a story on breast cancer in Uganda. I photographed the hospital, generic pictures of the hospital, the radiation room, people getting chemotherapy. But then there was one woman that I focused on and I was trying to tell the story through her eyes as a woman who had had a mastectomy, uh, did not follow up with chemotherapy. The cancer came back and, and she was dying when I met her. You know, there are elements that any photographer, myself included, look for. I wanted her with her family. I wanted her with the doctor, you know, general scenes of the ward to show the ward was overflowing with women uh, and men dying from cancer. There were people sleeping on the floor, the ritual of death. I mean, that's also a very important image because it's a closing image. You know, it shows this is the ultimate price that any of us pay. You mentioned being, because you're, I want to touch on two things. Um, I saw the article yesterday in Woman in the World of um, the lack of gender parity in what you're doing. And so I'd like for you to touch on that. But also, you mentioned in your book, like, you didn't want to show your fear because you're a woman. Yeah, I mean, I work in a profession that's primarily men. So I, I, when I started covering war 16 years ago, there were not that many women covering war. There's Carolyn Cole, who's a great photographer um, for the L.A. Times, Carol Guzzi for the Washington Post, Susan Micellis, Paula Bronstein. There are some women, but I... 
assumed just because we are a society that evolves and women are making more and more strides every year. Uh, I assume there would be more women by this point in my life, which is 16 years later, and there just simply are not. Um, I still do not see a lot of women in the field. I'm always thrilled when I see another woman. Everyone always asks me, why aren't there more women? I think I would say probably because the job is incredibly emotionally and physically taxing. Uh, You know, we can't really have a personal life with this job for many years, and often a woman reaches a point in her life where she wants to have a family. And, you know, it's obviously at the exact time when you become successful in your career, and that is the struggle that I had that, you know, I was finally starting to get the assignments I had dreamt about my entire life and it was exactly when I was about 37 and and my husband said you know you're old you're never going to get pregnant how are we (laughs) so I mean I think it's a a lot of women just decide to drop out and so that's my philosophy I have no idea what the you know if what the actual reality is or what the truth is or if anyone's actually looked into it what was the other question do you feel the need to be more courageous or exhibit I don't I don't feel the need to be more courageous but I think that people automatically um, when they see a woman the uh, I would say that the the response is oh god it's a woman you know like that that could be my own insecurity but we're talking about on the front line in a war zone so often when I would show up to embed with the military it was pretty clear that they would be bummed out when a woman would show up because they felt like, oh, she's not going to be able to keep up. What if we get shot at? Is she going to cry? You know, all that. So you have to really prove yourself that you can keep up and that you do have experience and that, you know, you will be able to hold your own. And essentially it comes down to that. Can you hold your own? Um, And I think, um, so in Libya when we were... um, there was, I, I had a premonition the morning that we had been kidnapped that something was going to happen. I knew we were sort of playing with fire because we were at the front line uh, for quite a long time, and our driver started getting calls that Gaddafi's troops had entered the city. And had I been more confident, I would have said, what the hell are we doing? Let's go. But I kind of kept my mouth shut because I, I was the only woman in a car of four men. And I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just scared, you know, maybe uh, it's unjustified this fear, you know, and I had been kidnapped in 2004, just for a day. I mean, it was like detained, but it, it still that sits with you. There's, there is an image that is emblazoned in my mind of turning a corner and seeing 30 insurgents with their faces wrapped and rockets on their backs and Kalashnikov shooting in the air because they found their prey. And that is an image that is indelible that will never go away. And so, of course, in Libya, I sort of the image of running into a a hostile checkpoint is something that again will sit with me forever and particularly because I know it was our fault I mean we just stayed too long and that's something that we all have to live with because our driver died I know you've been through a lot through all your reporting but what do you think is the hardest part of your job the hardest part of my job is what I put my family through. I mean, there's no question. I, I, um, you know, I can sort of deal with whatever I've been through. Yes, it sucks to get punched in the face and groped by a Libyan man while blindfolded. But and I, and it's something that I obviously it's traumatic and I'm processing it. But it's more knowing that I have put my parents and my husband and and my sisters through um, an extraordinarily difficult time every time I go missing.
the industry has changed so much away from not just print to digital and to more interactive stuff. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the how you think the changes in the industry have shaped your work. In the sense, I, I would say in a positive way, in a sense that they give me more outlets to publish photos, you know, things that, uh, for example, when I do a story for the New York Times, maybe eight pictures will make it or 12 will make it into a slideshow online. But I have all those other pictures that I, um, once the embargo is up, once a story is published, and then there's a period of time where uh, no one else can publish them, once that time finishes, I can then put them online, I can put them on Instagram, I can I can reach uh, a broader viewership. Um, so to me, that's, a, that's an advantage. The way I see is still the same. I'm always trying to look for the most comprehensive story. I'm always trying to get as much access as I possibly can. Uh, even if the story is a one-picture thing, I will try and uh, I'll try to get more. I'll try to get as much as I can. Is it harder to make a living doing what you do now than before? Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's harder to make a living or my standards are just higher because I'm 42. I mean, I think, you know, when I was in my 20s, I didn't care if I slept on someone's couch for a week. Obviously, I don't feel like that anymore. I have a, you know, I have a son and I have a husband and and I've been living, you know, like this for 20 years. So there are fewer publications um, that are in existence and there are also... Um, people don't have the budgets they used to have. I mean, I used to get sent on assignment and get sent on assignment for three months at a time. Uh, now I'm lucky if I get a week, you know. So I think there's a big difference. For me, my way of dealing with that is, um, you know, when I wrote the book, I suddenly was, uh, people started asking me to do speaking engagements. And I have, um, those were initially arranged through National Geographic. And National Geographic has a speakers bureau. And they have photographers that essentially make a living from speaking and so their fees were higher than I anticipated and so uh, I've been able to use speaking engagements to complement to enable me to do my editorial work which essentially doesn't pay I mean I'm still earning the same in day rates that I earned 20 years ago which means you know the rates have not gone up so you know people complain about it all the time but for me I'm I, I'm not the kind of person to sit around and complain and moan and say that you know there's no future in in photojournalism I care about journalism I believe in journalism I believe in photography so I would rather find another way to complement uh, my financial income and and do speaking gigs and and still do that work how do you manage your time like describe like what it is <laughs> I have to wake up now at five in the morning because I just don't have time anymore in the day. Um, I, you know, I always want to get a workout in. Um, I'm answering emails from London and from New York and, and trying to arrange things. I'm arranging speaking engagements. Every single one entails a presentation that I change. I cater to every different talk. And then I have um, meetings. Of course, today I have for example, I have, I'm participating in Women in the World. I have this. I have a lunch with my agent. I have to fit in a trip to the doctor because my back, I mean, I can barely walk these days because my lower back goes out. I have four vertebrae that slip out of place. I mean, it's insane, you know, and then I have a, an event, a dinner and an event tonight. I mean, my days now are like 18 hours. And that's when I'm not shooting. You know, when I'm shooting, actually... I'm, I'm, um, 
I'm stressed about making sure I get the images, but I'm much more relaxed in that I'm, there's one thing that I have to do. I have to make sure I'm in the right position for good light and, and, you know, with the subject I want to be with. And so it's a very different thing. So how much of your time is actually spent shooting and editing? I'd say about two weeks a month I shoot. And then two weeks is either, um, usually when I have my son and when I'm home, I'm, I'm doing all the sort of groundwork for either another shoot or a talk so I can do the work at home. I mean, I think people don't understand that being a photographer is not just taking a picture. I mean, it's like, 80% preparation and getting access and setting things up and research and and like 20% actually taking pictures. How has the response to the book been and where are you at with all that? Uh, The response to the book has been amazing. I'm a little overwhelmed. I sort of didn't expect anyone to actually read it. Uh, I'm not a writer, you know, by by profession. So what's surprising to me is I didn't want to write the book for photographers. I really wanted to write it uh, to give people who are not photographers an idea of what we do and so that was um, that's a tricky process because there's a lot to explain I've been quite surprised because actually that's exactly the sort of audience that it's tapped into people who are not photography relate well people who are not photographers themselves per se it's a fantastic book and I think you should write more what has been the most interesting response from the book do you think how women like to take down other women. For me, um, it wasn't so much with the book, but it was more uh, the excerpt in the New York Times Magazine of the book. So in that, I really focused on working while pregnant. And it's so interesting to me how women can't, not all women, of course, there were so many women who wrote and said, like, thank you for finally being honest about your ambivalence about being pregnant. And thank you for uh, just you know, working right through your pregnancy because so many people criticize. But the other, you know, the other commentary was how dare you go to Kenya or Somalia while pregnant with an unborn child and how dare you put their life at risk, which is so funny to me because not once do these women think about the fact that you know, I'm surrounded by pregnant women in Kenya and Somalia, and those women are giving birth every single day. The other aspect is, you know, women in in our country work in factories, you know, chemical factories while pregnant, right up until they deliver, and no one says anything about that. Why? Because it's a more traditional job. So it's interesting to me uh, to hear the criticism. I could care less. I mean, they can criticize me all, all they want. I mean, I make decisions, uh, you know, certainly not based on the public but I think um, that was fascinating yeah do you think you've developed that tough skin over time or do you think you had it when you started I think I grew up in a family that really promoted and really supported individuality and really sort of made uh, my parents and my sisters instilled a confidence in me um, to be who I am and and to follow my dreams and I think that that's something that is the greatest gift of all and I think you need that if you're doing a job where you know like I do where I'm constantly out interviewing people and you know bearing witness to horrific things and also uh, taking testimony from people who live on the margins of society so I feel a great responsibility to be sort of the messenger and to get these stories out and to to get the the most intimate moments I can because you know, I am providing uh, their testimony to the world. And so 
I have to do it in the most comprehensive way that I possibly can and the most intimate way, in a way that will bring people in, in a way that will get the public who is so tired of seeing images of death and destruction and, you know, horror. We've been at war for many, many years to try to get the public to pay attention and to care about things that they wouldn't care about. Um, On a lighter note, Jennifer Lawrence is going to be playing you. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, how did that all go down? Um, She was given a copy of the book by Andrew Lazar, who is the producer of the movie. Uh, He's working with Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers has optioned the movie. And she read the book and she read some excerpts and she loved the character and or she loved she thought it would be interesting to play someone like me and so she's enthusiastic and she's totally brilliant I mean obviously she's an actress who is so accomplished and and she's hilarious she's funny and very real and it's exciting and um, I've met with the writer and I've met with Steven Spielberg and and so but I, I I'm not the one writing the movie you know it's not a documentary this is a this is Hollywood and there will be fiction in there what advice would you give to um, maybe a journal or someone starting out in photography, photojournalism? I would say identify the topics you care about. Uh, try to tell stories. Try to get in deep. Get yourself out of your comfort zone. Get out there and photograph. Don't talk about it for 10 years. Use your free time to get out there. You know, people are sort of waiting to be assigned the dream story. Well, that's not going to happen. You know, you have to assign yourself. What do you think the... 20-year-old version of yourself who moved to Cuba to, you know, early on would think about this, where you are right now. I would never. I mean, I still think of myself as that same person who's, like, struggling to get assignments and, like, you know, I don't... I believe, I I firmly believe in life it's important to not be too comfortable and confident. I think that you have to have some degree of hunger and I I believe in that and I, I like to have that insecurity with my work, not with me as a person, but with my work because I, I want to keep pushing myself always to be a better person and photographer. Thank you to Lindsay for giving us her time and this great conversation. Her courage and drive inspires us all to be more sensitive and curious. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find out more about Lindsay. This show is produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon. Music is by Poddington Bear. Sarah and I hope to bring you a few more episodes of She Does in the coming months. But in the meantime, be sure to pick up a copy of Lindsay Adario's memoir, It's What I Do. Happy holidays, and thank you for listening to She Does.